You are listening to the 30th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which sees Daredevil enter the world of bondage clubs and sadomasochism to clear the name of his client, who happens to be the Gladiator. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show without fear. I am J. David Weeder, and you can call me Dave, or David, or just hey you. This, of course, is a podcast covering Daredevil, Marvel's own Man Without Fear, currently looking at the complete Frank Miller run on the title. Before we do that, before we look at this week's issue, let me comment on this. For the longest time, I have been a DC guy at heart. I loved Marvel, specifically Daredevil, Hulk, and Captain America, and the X-Men, of course. But I was a born and bred member of the DC Nation. The DC Nation is where the comic love started, especially Superman. It was home. It was what I knew. Now, the Marvel Universe was intriguing, and I definitely loved it, but it was like the hip friends you make in high school or college versus the kids you grew up with. But recently, I finally really fully joined the Marvel U. Now, even though the current state of DC is not striking my fancy... I don't want it to sound like I'm bashing on DC. That's not the case. I still love DC from certain vintages. I have a lot of DC reading on the plate for this summer. Several volumes of Showcase Presents to Devour. But, for me, new comics are Marvel now. I mean, I still have a toe in the water, so to speak, with the DC Universe, but new current comics are all from Marvel. I haven't had a pull list since about 2011. But I finally went to my LCS because I'm a creature of habit. I have certain habits, certain routines I like to do. One of those is having a pull list. Going to the shop, getting my books, going somewhere to eat and reading those. Recently, I finally started a pull list at my LCS, which is the Comic Cave in Springfield, Missouri. And my pull list is 100% Marvel. And so far, it's all been great. Mark Wade's Daredevil is, of course, excellent. Elektra has been a nice surprise. Iron Fist, the living weapon, way above board, and Silver Surfer is blowing my mind. Not only that, but we have an ongoing Nightcrawler series. And I found myself enjoying new comics again for the first time in a while. Now, when I first entered the podcasting scene, it was all about Superman. So the idea that one day I would be doing this show about Daredevil and massively enjoying it, I would have given you this cocked eyebrow. But it's happened. I mean, I'm kind of an expatriate from the DC Universe, at least in its modern context. But for me, again, I'm not bashing on DC. It's more of a reluctance to connect with these familiar yet different versions of characters with these altered backstories. I don't want to put the work in to relearn them. And that's more on me than DC Comics. Uh, They went their direction. That's fine. It's their toys to do with as they wish. I'm just not wanting to put the work in. And I've fallen more and more in love with Daredevil and Hulk and Marvel as a whole. But this isn't a tragic story. This is a story of a man who's happy right now. I'm happy with where I found myself, especially with this show. Every time I get ready to start an episode, it doesn't feel like a weight on my shoulders. I'm jazzed about what is to come with the Frank Miller run, what's on board for the next few years, and 
let me tell you, there are some awesome things to come. But I, in the end, and this is going to sound really pretentious, I think this is the show I was trying to do when I started making shows. It's simple, it's straightforward, it may not be internationally known. It's not getting Adam Carolla numbers, but man, I'm enjoying myself with this material. I'm really absorbing these comics and getting into it. Now speaking of that, we do have an issue of Daredevil to talk about. Issue 173, which is a bit of a breather issue, insofar as breather issues go with this run. Now, the last few weeks, we've had this major event snowballing. Elektra arrived, Bullseye was in the fray, Kingpin had a mob war. So it's refreshing to get this one-off issue that is very different from that. Not just in scope, but in attitude and tone. And I think the difference in tone is apparent from the cover, which is penciled by Frank Miller and inked by Klaus Janssen. It has Daredevil swing-kicking a pair of fighters in leather and studded outfits adorned with bondage masks against a plain white background. The traditional trade dress is amended to say, Daredevil goes berserk. It's simple, yet this one is... It's more dynamic than the one we had a few issues ago where Daredevil was kicking the kingpin. For one thing, more combatants. The motion is a lot more kinetic. It feels like something is happening on this cover rather than, well... A cliche. And it's weird to say that that cover with the Kingpin and Daredevil was a cliche because it was made before that cliche existed. But again, we're looking at it with more modern eyes looking back. And the cover really does have a distinct but accidental Road Warrior feel, which that movie had come out not too terribly long before this. So I do think it was accidental, but it is what it is. The weird thing is, again, we have a sword, just like we saw in Bullseye's hand last issue. And that sword looks like pretty much the same sword. I think Frank Miller has a thing for swords. Could be. Now, I like that they added that Daredevil goes berserk. Putting that on the cover makes you want to go in and see what's happening. Why is Daredevil losing his mind? Why is he kicking these people? And I need to note that on the main goon who's getting a kick to the face, his pants? Purple. There's got to be some manufacturer who makes purple pants in the Marvel Universe that's just rolling in the dough. So, with this cover, right out of the gate, we know this issue is going to be, you know, again, different. Not just from what came before in this book, but from what was on stands at the time, it's pretty edgy. I mean, we are still in the middle of the Comics Code Authority, and yes, I just want to point out, the seal is on this issue. It doesn't feel like it at parts, but it is there. We don't have a lot to recap since we're between story arcs. Let's remember that a few issues back, Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the Gladiator, took some kids hostage at a museum. His parole officer, Miss Betsy, was there, explained that he was very childlike in nature. Potter is currently waiting to stand trial. So, that's where we're setting it up. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play, of course, a quick promo for a podcast. And when we come back, we will open up and dissect Daredevil number 173. the Enterprise, a proper shakedown. I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? 
Spanish will never use the caption. Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? make illogical decisions. Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the two true freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek the original series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. All right, we are back to jump into Daredevil number 173, the August 1981 issue. The story is entitled Lady Killer, written and penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, colored by Glennis Ween. It is reprinted if you're reading along. You can find this in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, And of course, it is digital, so you can purchase it or get a subscription to Marvel Digital Unlimited and read all you want. The story goes thus. In an evening back alley, a group of punks or 'er ne'er-do-wells, whatever you want to call them, thugs, I don't care. But they're hanging out, doing their thing, when they spot Matt Murdock making his way to the office for a late night meeting. Seeing that he's low-hanging fruit, clearly he's blind, right? And he has a fancy suit on, they decide it would be a good idea to rob him not knowing that, of course, he's secretly Daredevil. And it goes as well as you would expect, with Matt effortlessly mopping the floor with them. But Matt is late for a meeting, and near his office, Lois Lane and Clark Kent are snooping around to catch a peek at Matt's... Wait, Lois Lane and Clark Kent? No, no, this is Jeff. His name is Jeff, and her name isn't given, so Lois and Jeff are in his bad neighborhood, searching around, and something grabs Jeff. A few minutes later, that same somebody or something grabs the girl. Having changed to Daredevil, the man without fear hears her scream from a rooftop and swoops down to find Jeff and what's-her-name getting thoroughly beaten by a big piece of beefy man. With the neighborhood watching and Daredevil showing up, the man runs off. Daredevil does not chase him because his responsibility is to help the injured reporters and, of course, see his client getting arrested. Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the Gladiator, is taken into custody since he matched the attacker's description, like exactly matched it. 
While Daredevil knows that the attacker wasn't Potter, Matt Murdock can't tell the cops without exposing his secret identity. And Betsy, Melvin's parole officer from a few issues back, pleads that Potter is innocent, and Matt promises that it will all be sorted out. Now, let me stop here again for these few pages. Once again, on the first page, the credits are ingrained in the art itself. The title of the story is Strown in the Trash on the Ground in the Alley, and the credits are written on the wall as graffiti. It's not quite as ingrained as previous incarnations, but it works. Now, the scene with Matt getting robbed by these punks, it makes me remember that, once again, Frank Miller was robbed twice when coming to New York. Probably a lot like this, except Miller doesn't have radar sense or a billy club. At least to the best of our knowledge, he doesn't have radar sense or a billy club. So I'm starting to realize this is sort of a fantasy of what Frank wanted to do to the people who were mugging him, but couldn't. Bitter much, Frank? I made the reference to Lois and Clark showing up, and I'm sorry, this is pretty clearly Clark Kent and Lois Lane. Of course, his name is Jeff. Let's be clear on that. Jeff. But take away the word balloons where she says this. I'm sorry, two roving reporters... One a strapping man with dark hair and glasses, the other a brunette woman who's feisty. Come on. We all know what Frank was doing here. And of course, Frank Miller would go on to write Superman in Dark Knight Returns in a, shall we say, controversial depiction of the Man of Steel that was meant to be set specifically for that story, but fans have turned it into Frank Miller's personal viewpoint on Superman. Just to let you know, the milk toast depiction in Dark Knight Returns was meant as a bit of satire and meant only for that context. It's not his personal viewpoint on the character. And, of course, Daredevil hears the fight from way above, and the shot where he hears the scream is pretty spectacular. Again, a long panel, page length, very thin width, and it's Daredevil clinging to the side of a wall with the scream floating up from below. Very great panel with a lot of good shadow work. A few good shots of Daredevil running across of clotheslines, bouncing off of tiered buildings, and then finally we get to the ground floor and the guy runs off. There's a part of me that wonders, were we robbed of a fight here? Let me be honest with you, we were not. There's a reason that that conflict was avoided. And we have the frustrating situation where Matt can't tell the police why Melvin was not the perpetrator. Because, well, just because. My confusion comes from, that's not quite entirely accurate because Melvin had a reason to be at that location and that reason was to meet with Matt Murdock to plan his defense so Matt Murdock could say hey he was supposed to be here but he couldn't say Melvin wasn't the attacker Daredevil could Daredevil does have a bit of a rapport with the police but upon further inspection Daredevil can't do that because well he's blind Melvin by all visual accounts looks like this perpetrator Daredevil knows different because Daredevil's perceiving him with heartbeats, smells, things of that nature. So Daredevil can't reveal he's blind. Matt Murdock can't reveal he's Daredevil. It's a bad situation for Melvin, and Matt feels horrible. Luckily, Matt is confident enough in both of his guises that he can dig Melvin out of this hole. I am bothered a little bit that Matt urges Melvin to use his Miranda rights, the right to remain silent. Again, Melvin has a legitimate reason to be in this area, and he has two people... Matt and Betsy to corroborate this. So we know why Melvin was in the neighborhood. Melvin has a legitimate reason to be there. Why not put that on the table during the arrest? Sure, anything you say can and will be used against you, but sometimes that works for you. But I'm not a legal expert, so sure, I see why Matt would want to mount the case after the fact, I guess. It just feels like 
Melvin couldn't say anything wrong here unless he started attacking the police. And that may be a very real possibility, so Matt was probably trying to stave off a potential conflict. So, let's jump back into the story here, see how this progresses and how it gels. Matt and his secretary, Becky Blake, visit Melvin in jail to plan their defense, sans Foggy, who's off being depressed somewhere else. But immediately upon meeting Melvin, Becky faints. A bit later at the hospital, Becky dodges Matt's questions, but finally admits to being attacked by what appeared to be Melvin Potter a few years earlier while in college. That attack ended with Becky being in a wheelchair for life. But Becky never reported the attack, which enrages Matt. Becky promptly kicks Matt out for his indignation. Matt is able to get a delay in trial for Melvin, which allows him to do some investigating as Daredevil, but that comes up empty. His attempt to find out what is wrong with Foggy meets with a dead end as well, when Foggy stonewalls Matt and kicks Matt out of he and Deb's apartment. It seems Deb has no idea why Foggy's depressed either. Meanwhile, Melvin breaks out of jail and is about to steal his armor from the museum, again, when Matt is able to calm him down. Melvin willingly returns to jail with a bit of faith in his lawyer. But watching the news of a jailbreak, the real killer-slash-attacker sees his opportunity to attack again, and Melvin's parole officer, Betsy, looks pretty cute on TV, pleading for Melvin to turn himself in. Okay, let's talk about Becky Blake just a little bit. Becky first appeared in Daredevil number 155. Now, up to this moment, Becky's just kind of been there. She pines over Matt a little, but... She's in the background, and I want to point out that when Becky first appeared under the pencil of Frank Robbins, she looked pretty vivacious. She looked like Heather. A lot like Heather. Dark brunette hair, shapely. The only difference would be that Becky is in a wheelchair. Miller has kind of lightened up the hair color and made Becky a bit more mousy to kind of distinguish the two. But oddly enough, he's made Becky look like Betsy, Melvin's parole officer. They look similar, they have similar names... In order to avoid some confusion, he's created more. Again, when Becky meets Melvin, she faints. We know why now. But the shot in which Melvin simply says hello is pretty amazing. There's some very intense line work in that face, making it look a little digital, a little distorted, a little bit scary too. Now again, Becky's been in the background, so the story of Becky's attack is pretty much the first time we get any indication that there's more to this character other than just filling up space. And we get all of this in one big 12-panel page. Now, Miller has used a lot of panels on the page, which breaks the quote-unquote rules of storytelling in comics. Most of the time, it's not very noticeable. It doesn't stand out in any real way. Here, it does. And maybe that's just due to the talking heads nature of the scene. Because nothing's happening here. Becky's telling a story. We don't get a flashback. And that, I assume, is due to the comics code. We are talking about a brutal attack by a man on a woman. And yes, let's be honest. Let's be honest about Matt. Matt's being a douche again. Matt's out of line in terms of his tact. Basically, he berates Becky for not reporting this crime. Matt's not out of line in his viewpoint per se, but the way he's expressing these views, that Becky should have reported this, should have made this person pay. They're so out of whack for a guy that stands in front of a jury to convince them to his side. It's a bit disappointing, but it's also part of the overall plot of this issue. So... I'll touch on that a bit more a little bit later. Now, speaking of standing in front of a jury and lawyering, we see Matt in a courtroom. And, of course, a case pertinent to the plot. This is based on Melvin's original charges of kidnapping when he attacked the museum a few issues back. Issue 166 to be exact. Now, I like 
a nice continuing thread. And this keeps Melvin in the background until we need him, which is here. We've seen uh, little spots here and there about Melvin's trial, but it's worked out really well. And I like seeing Matt in a courtroom and something organic to the story, not just some random mugger getting defended or something like that. And Miller's kind of running with the concept that Melvin's a child. He's got a child's mindset. And here Melvin's getting frustrated because he didn't commit this crime. He's trying to do well. He's trying to be a good guy. And we see him really getting impatient and a little bit scared, which is very childlike in nature because, well, as a child, were you ever blamed for something you didn't do? It's frustrating to not be able to explain yourself clearly enough to convince others that this was not your crime. I mean, if your brother or sister was blaming you for breaking their toy and it's a toy you didn't touch, yeah, that's pretty frustrating because you can't prove otherwise. It's your word against theirs and, well, you're a child. It's frustrating. Matt's frustrated too and this leads to a great five-panel montage spread. But Daredevil's basically just going around town beating people up and it, at the top of the page is a very broad picture of Daredevil looking pretty awesome against the backdrop of New York City from a sky angle. It's just three panels. Daredevil's attacking somebody in an alley. Somebody gets hit with a chair, foot on their chest. Somebody gets dangled from a light pole. And then the final one is Daredevil sitting on this eagle statue or bird statue watching the sun come up. Still empty-handed. And let me see what we're all thinking as we move into Matt visiting Deb at the apartment. Deb doesn't know what's occurring with Foggy. We all want to know what crawled up Foggy's butt. He's treating Matt like a jerk. He simply walks in. And he just flatly says, get out of here, Murdoch. Leave my wife alone. Beat it. Just to let you know, we're going to find out next issue, next episode, what's occurring with Foggy. But at this point, Foggy's really getting on my nerves. Now, one of my favorite bits is Melvin has returned to the museum from issue 166. He's trying to steal the gladiator armor. He's got the helmet in hand. And Matt, not Daredevil, Matt, talks Melvin, not the gladiator, down. Melvin really wants to put this on and hit the streets, so to speak. But Matt's trying to appeal to his better nature. Again, showing the compassion of Matt Murdock. And he's treating him like a child. And I don't mean that he's talking down to him. He is being patient. He is being steady. He's trying to appeal to the better nature of, of Melvin. And it works. And it brings something out in Melvin that's actually quite touching. Because Melvin's looking at the helmet saying, When I'm wearing my armor, I'm unbeatable. And then slowly realizes, I'm all alone. And he just crumples to his knees and says, help me, please. It is creating a character out of an existing character. I mean, that's something that's been a theme with Miller's run. Bullseye gets amped up. Kingpin gets brought back and changed and amped up as well. And likewise, Melvin Potter is being stripped of his armor. We're kind of seeing more about Melvin than we've seen before. And it creates this wonderful textured character that's going to play out throughout Miller's run. And now we go from emotionally intense to just straight up intense with the last segment of this story. Later that night, Betsy receives a visit from a big, muscled man in leather bondage mask and studded leather straps. He tries to attack Betsy, and she puts up a good fight. But it's only when her neighbors respond to the noise that the attacker flees. Daredevil arrives later to tell Betsy about Melvin turning himself in and finds the police are already there. Armed with a description of the attacker's Pulp Fiction gimp outfit, Daredevil beats the streets and bondage bars until he finds his prey. At a leather club, Daredevil confronts the attacker who rallies other heavies to his aid and they manage to outnumber and overwhelm Daredevil, pinning him to the ground. While under attack, Daredevil thinks of how Becky must have felt during her attack and the rage, the sheer rage of that idea gives Daredevil a second wind. 
Daredevil gets back to his feet and starts delivering some solid punches and kicks until he is able to fend off the attackers. And then he grabs the big guy's mask and tears it off. The attacker is revealed to be Michael Reese, a dead ringer for Melvin Potter. And it happens that Reese's attack on Betsy occurred after Melvin had turned himself in. So Reese is arrested, Melvin is set free, and justice is served. But the issue is not over. We end the issue with Matt making a visit to Becky Blake to try a more compassionate plea for her to report her attack. If she doesn't, Reese could go free. He adds that she may be in a wheelchair, but letting Reese go would cripple her. And in the final panels, Becky picks up the phone and asks for the police. So let me jump right in here with the attack. Michael Reese and his outfit, uh, the way he's depicted is terrifying. And I, I feel responsible to point out that those that participate in bondage or leather, any of that, not everybody who participates in that is a deviant. Now, Reese has issues that has nothing to do with the culture. The culture itself is one thing. Michael Reese and his mentality is another. So, with that out of the way, just to make sure my context is clear, kudos to Betsy for fighting against Reese. She fights him off. It's extremely edgy, this scene is, for a comic of this time period. And remember that we did look and confirm that the Comics Code Authority stamp is on the issue. It doesn't feel like it during this part, but that's kind of part of the illusion of this scene. For the time that we live in now, with a level of, of violence that's in modern comics, this is pretty tame. But it could be considered fodder for women in refrigerators, which is a movement against violence against women in comics. Now... I would say that this should not be placed on that mantle. There are instances where, yes, women are unfairly abused. But this is supposed to be sickening. This is supposed to be depraved. Violence is horrible. Especially when it's a weak person being put upon by a strong person, regardless of gender. It's horrible. And the level of violence in modern comics has kind of desensitized us to some of the shock value of violence. Sometimes to get a message across you have to show the ramifications of an event. This is supposed to shock and appall. We're not supposed to look at this and not feel something. And let's be honest, in the real world, violence does happen to both genders, male, female. As far as the women refrigerators, yes, Kyle Rayner's girlfriend, Alex, in the refrigerator, Gwen Stacy, these were meant to be turning point shocks. It was meant to be a horrific scene, and all three of these were. They still retain some of that. Now, I say that this is the illusion of being shocking because in all of this, yes, a door is kicked open, a lamp is thrown over, but the only blows thrown is Becky gets Michael with a knife. Michael hits her one time. But it's enough. It's enough to make the point clear. And Miller's going to use a lot of tools to make his point. Violence is bad. Attacking innocent people is bad. Which you would think would be common sense. To you or I, yes. There are people out here in the world that don't realize that there are dangerous people on our streets at any given time. Now, this scene serves later to create this surge of rage in Daredevil. This is a bully. Daredevil has a problem with bullies. Daredevil loses his cool when he confronts Michael. He's not messing around. He's angry. He's emotional. And before I go too far into this uh, fight, I do want to point out that Daredevil is using the strap on his billy club now, which allows a swinging billy club, so it's more fluid, it's nice. So Daredevil's confronting him, he's off level. That costs Daredevil the upper hand. Daredevil loses his discipline because he's fighting from emotion. Another thing that could be lobbied against this issue is that it could be considered chauvinist. 
Daredevil's comparing himself to Becky being attacked, and we also have this big, strong man coming in to defend these women. That's not what's happening here. This is Daredevil understanding Becky's pain. This is Daredevil entering into a situation where he is outgunned, he's outmatched, he's at the hands and mercy of a bully, or bullies. And for as much as the scene with Betsy was terrifying but did not have any actual blows, this scene is quite brutal because the comics code would generally allow this against violence against women. We have Daredevil getting overpowered. It's a violation. It's hard to look at because our hero is having beer poured on him. He is pinned down to the ground. He's just getting knocked around. Daredevil is somebody we care about. We know this character. If you've picked up this issue, you want to see this character succeed or defend or what have you. Becky is somebody we don't have that relationship with. But this is a great way to convey how horrible Becky's attack must have been. How terrible Betsy's attack could have been. And of course we have that switch happening in, in Matt. Where he realizes this is how she felt. This is how helpless, horribly helpless she was. And yet we have this strong, agile, capable man under the same duress. So let me remove the gender roles by saying that. And let me clarify one point real quick. The first attack, Becky's, which is talked about, was a man on a woman. Betsy's attack was tame and more potential. Daredevil's attack is brutal. So we see the magnitude of what Michael Reese can do and how horrible it is. But we see it through Daredevil, which is somewhat safe or considered safe, but it's effective. So kudos. And of course, Daredevil ends up reigning in the end, but it all leads to this great tender scene with Matt and Becky and yet another character that Miller has managed to grow since his tenure has begun. He's transformed her. We care about Becky now in a way we didn't last issue or the issue before. Now to stand up to something or a bully, something like this, it takes guts. So Becky gets the biggest victory in this issue. The thesis of violence against women is, is a solid one. It's one that needs to be addressed. Violence against anybody needs to be addressed. It needs to be reported. The issue is skirted a little bit, but the result, the restraint, ends up working for the story because the point is definitely made. Miller puts a face to this concept of violence against other people in three ways. Becky is the result, the long term the trauma after the event. Betsy is the possibility, being on the precipice of something terrible. Luckily, she got out of it. And then there's Daredevil and his beatdown showing the brutality, the sheer scope of what an event like this would be like. The issue doesn't go away when we close the comic. It's real. Violence is very real, and we read about it every week in, in this comic in Daredevil. That's fiction. In the real world, violence needs to be reported. It needs to be stopped. There's always going to be somebody bigger, somebody out there who's a bully. If you can stave them and stand up to somebody without anybody getting injured, preferably, do so. But ultimately, if you are a bully, just stop. Just stop. Take a higher path. Now, let me do some overall thoughts before I get a little too preachy here. This was a nice breather issue, but it was relevant socially. The problem is, once you stop reading the issue, it's almost forgettable in the tapestry of things because it's sandwiched between the big gang war and then what's going to come next which begins this huge slide towards epicness. The issue manages to use Becky for once, make her relevant, make us care about her, and make her a good part of Daredevil's supporting cast. And it's a topical issue. It brings Melvin back into the story in a way that's going to position him for really great things to come. 
And we get both Matt and Daredevil working both sides. Matt on the legal side to try to argue Melvin's freedom. Daredevil, you know, hitting people. Going through a a legitimate emotional arc. I'm not going to discount that. In the end, we come right up to it being a moving issue. But again, we're going to move on and this issue is going to be forgotten. But we can't forget that these issues, these horrible events happen in the real world. If we do that, if we forget that, if we stop caring about that, then the women in refrigerators concept is correct. It's violence against women for no reason. So if there's ever any takeaway from this episode or any episode, at least take that away, please. But that is the Shinola on Daredevil number 173. Next week, Elektra returns and teams up with Daredevil and the Gladiator to face the assassination of Matt Murdock. Or I could just put it in one word. Ninjas. That's in seven days. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one. They call a man without fear. Never far away whenever danger's near. There's devil fight for what is right. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Oh, wow.